Welcome to the Feast of the Candles and to the presentation of Christ in the Temple. But we're going to be talking a lot more than about Candle Mass today. We're going to be also talking about the rhythms of the church year. And in preparation for this um, presentation this week, I read the most this book that I know is going to change my life. So I, I am very eager to share some of its ideas with you. And of course, I've adapted them and tweaked them a little bit. It's called The Wisdom of the Seasons. And you'd think it was just, you know, how the church year helps us understand our congregational stories. Um, it might seem like it's a pretty, okay, you know, I thought this might be kind of interesting, give me some ideas. But this is actually a spiritual formation book. And he starts out with talking about the essence of formation and spiritual direction and then moves from there into how the seasons and the texts of the seasons can shape us. And it is just, it's, it's an amazing book. So that's kind of going to be the context of some of what we're going to talk about. And I know you have a handout with a chart and don't look at that quite yet because, um, I'm going to explain it, so I don't want you to be confused about it. And then we're going to move into talking about candle mass, but we're also going to just basically, I really want to look at the text this morning and really talk about the texts of candle mass um, because I think they're just, um, well, well, we'll just, we'll go on from there. So February 2nd, it's always such a weird time. I don't know how many of you remember, whenever I think of candle mass, I think of that blizzard we had. I think it was in 2010, 12. I cannot remember. I don't know how many of you remember the blizzard of Candlemas when we got 40 inches of snow? That's what I always think of when I think of Candlemas for some reason. I also think about putting away my, East, my um, Christmas decorations. It's kind of, um, it's not really the end of Epiphany. I would like to say it's like the apex of Epiphany, personally. I think we have like kind of an arc, you know, beginning with, you know, the actual celebration of Epiphany, seeing the star, and then as we move through the season, we have candle mass kind of in the center. And then we have the last few weeks before Lent. Some years those are longer than others because of the way season, uh, Easter is a movable feast. But this year, we have kind of a short period between, East, uh, between candle mass and the beginning of Lent. So we are still in Epiphany. And next year, or excuse me, next Sunday, Hannah is going to be talking about Epiphany. But it's kind of a weird Sunday because it always seems to be also Super Bowl Sunday, and it's also this whole, you know, I, did he see his shadow? I haven't been listening to the news this morning. I don't know. He did not see his shadow. He did not see his shadow. Okay. If you are interested in the history of uh, Groundhog Day and how it might fit in with, a, with Candle Mass, um, I refer you to Christianity Today. just came out with an article by our catechist. Um, it was a great article about I loved how he you wove in the whole tradition and, and somehow actually Groundhog Day is a little bit related somehow I don't I can't remember now from reading but it is a little bit you know somehow an offshoot uh, from the German um, settlers that came over the Lutherans that came over to Pennsylvania so so what are we celebrating today why are we celebrating it's kind of one of those holidays that in non-liturgical churches if you even ask them what is candle mass they would probably like you'd get a blank stare. But I still have my crèche up. I still have actually some of my greens up. I have a lot of my Christmas decorations up. It's going to be my little ritual today to go home and take them all down, although I'm going to still leave my lights up until um, Lent. 
So, um, click. Celebrating the Seasons of the Church. Um, presentation of the Lord Candle Mass. Um, I chose this image because one of the things that I really gleaned from this book that I read is the ebb and the flow of our spiritual lives in a way mirrors this ebb and flow of the church year. And these are the ways in which it does. Um, we think of, you know, we are people that mark time. Um, the Lord gave the Israelites seasons. The Lord gave the Israelites celebrations to mark their time. And of course the Christian church adapted that. But we mark our time in other ways too. We mark our time through our days. We mark our time through our weeks. So I want to think a little bit about that, about how spirituality and time are kind of interwoven together. And the author of this book, he basically was talking about He's evidently a spiritual director, and he was talking about the three movements that he often sees in spiritual direction, and I would echo that too. And the first movement is this kind of letting go, this surrender. What, what is God doing in your life? That's often what will be the first question a spiritual director will ask a directee when they meet with them is, what what are you what is God doing in your life right now? What is it that He's working with it? And what are your yearnings? What are your hopes? What is it that you need to let go of? And that that's just such fruitful discussion just from there. And that's a journey that um, someone who's in spiritual direction will take with their spiritual director is trying to identify those areas of yearning and those areas of needing to surrender. Naming God's presence, um, that, that of course is something that we do each day, but in the course of I trying to identify what are our yearnings, what do we need to surrender, we invite God to come into that and we name his presence. And the whole relationship of spiritual direction is listening to God together. I'm in a program right now almost finished training to become a spiritual director which is called holy conversations and i love the name of that because it is it's it's a holy conversation where we're inviting the lord in to speak to us both and it's a privilege i mean it's an absolute privilege as a spiritual director to watch how god is working in people's lives and how he shows up and how when you name god's presence he is there he will come and then the final kind of stage is what we call this kind of taking hold. And that stage is represented by this idea that we, and it is so often, in fact, um, yesterday I had a supervision meeting with some of the spiritual directors, and, and both of us had experiences where we, we, um, we knew of someone who, who had this mountaintop experience with God, like say on a retreat or in a session or something, and the first thing they wanted to do was set up an altar, basically. Um, you know, I gotta do something now. I gotta go out and I gotta tell the world about Jesus. Um, and so this is this way in which we say, we, how do we share the gospel? How do we share our experience of God with each other? But even more importantly, how do we align our lives 
to that which we've experienced, to that love of God, that peace, that forgiveness that we've experienced. How do we align our lives to it? And so that's that idea of taking hold. So let's like take a look at that, how that might occur in time in our lives. So daily, there's three movements. So when does the day begin for you, for most of us? When do we think our day begins? Coffee. Pardon? <laughs> Coffee. Yes. <laughs> Coffee. Um, yeah, there's a rule of life I've, I've, I'm trying to put in my life. It's, um, it's maybe not co coffee, maybe, okay, before prayer, but no phone before prayer or no phone before Bible. But I think that is often what our first impulse when we wake up. We've got those never mind things sitting by us. But, um, but yeah, so most of us think of it as morning, right? But in the biblical sense, it isn't. Um, there was evening and there was morning the first day. In the Jewish culture, the day began at the evening meal, at sundown. Sabbath began in the evening. So what would it be like if we started to think of our days beginning in the evening rather than in the morning? What would that look like? I'm just curious. What do you think that might look like? Yeah, Joy. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. What's coming? What's our plan? What's the plan? Yeah. And I joke about starting with coffee, but it is a little bit like you wake up groggy and I drink my coffee mm -hmm. and I don't know what's going on until, you know, halfway through the Yeah. Day. So it's interesting so, about flipping, flipping yeah. the meal from like a debrief to a, to a thinking ahead. Or even, okay, we're talking about beverages. How about, you know, <laughs> the day begins with that glass of wine before dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I just couldn't help myself, Jason. <laughs> well, that, the author of this book wants us to consider that. He wants us to consider. And he basically sees that evening is a time of letting go of the day before. Like, we, yes, that recap. Often that recap is, oh, my gosh, this, this. I mean, we actually have that idea of the examine. And I know in my own personal practice, I can't do examine at night because I just end up going through everything I think I did wrong that day. And that's not really what examine is supposed to be. Examine is supposed to be inviting God in to see the ways that you've seen God. And so I actually have started doing examine in the morning because it was more helpful for me to get like a night of sleep and then kind of to look forward. So, you know, Examine is a wonderful practice if you are able to use it in a way that is a letting go and a surrendering and saying, God, this is what happened during the day. I give it all to you. Um, 
It's a letting go. It's like Joy said, it's rest. And then at the night, as we go to bed, to name God's presence as we sleep. And evening, to see evening as rest. It's such a revolutionary idea. I, I, it, it's just, and for me, it's taken, I mean, I still, the practice of resting in God is such, you know, when I think about resting, you know, at the end of a long day and I'm tired, I just want to flip on, well, I don't have a TV, I can't do that. But, you know, it's just, um, you know, get on the computer and watch a show or something because you're just so tired and you're mentally just done. Um, but to come home from work and to sit down and do evening prayer has been something that has really helped me to discover the ways in which, yes, I can find rest in God. Um, so then the next, yes? So, so fast, there's a, yeah. a lot of sociologists have said that productivity has replaced goodness as the chief Absolutely. goal of our society. Yes. And this is a stake in the heart of that idea. That's what I love about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Matt just said, I don't know if this is being recorded, but he said that, I think it's a really important point, that sociologists are seeing that in our society now being productive is the value that we hold, not being good. And that this kind of a pattern just kind of reverses that whole thing. And yes, I would really, really agree with that. So what are some of the rhythms of the church? Um, this is a chart that he has um, that kind of illustrates this Night is God's presence and wisdom. 6 p.m. evening letting go. Morning taking hold. And then the day is God's presence in work. It's a beautiful chart. And I looked at that and I thought, hmm, evening prayer, compline, morning prayer. Let's take a look at the prayers. And it was quite interesting, actually, to do that. Evening prayer. This is an excerpt from our Anglican prayer book that this evening may be holy, good, and peaceful, let us pray with one heart and mind. As our evening prayer rises before you, O God, so may your mercy come down upon us to cleanse our hearts and set us free to sing your praise now and forever. Let's look at Compline. I'm sorry, there's a typo there. As the night watch looks for the morning, so we look for you, O Christ. Let us praise God through Jesus Christ, whose light conquers the darkness of our earthly night. Amen. Naming God's presence right before we go to sleep. Morning prayer. Taking hold, aligning. Um, this is a prayer that I'm very glad that ACNA has put it in their prayer book for morning prayer because for some reason common worship has left it out. It is like my favorite morning prayer. Prayer. It is the morning prayer. Lord, it is the ending of morning prayer in our ACNA prayer books and in the Episcopal books. Lord God, almighty and everlasting Father, you have brought us in safety. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity in all we do. Direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a prayer of aligning and inviting God to come in and take our, our presence, take presence in our lives. So that's daily. What about weekly? 
the liturgy. And as I opened up my prayer book and looked at our Eucharistic liturgy, the pattern was right there, right there. Letting go, naming God's presence, taking hold. So let's look at our liturgy, the way we can, um, this reinforces that rhythm. We start out letting go. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. So I'm, I've written a lot about how liturgy forms us, and we've also been really helped by a lot of what Jamie Smith has written. And as I was going through this, I thought, these three rhythms, if they could even be just come a part of my life, letting go, naming God's presence, aligning my life. It's, it's, it's almost like a prayer. And then when we see this um, magnified and repeated throughout all our worship practices, that's when worship starts to really form us because it's reinforcing those patterns. And that's what we see in our liturgy when we come on Sunday. Um, naming his presence. We name his presence when we read the word of God. He is present. The ministry of the sacrament. Naming his presence, thanksgiving. Consecration. That's actually a little bit of aligning also because we not only consecrate, well, I'll get to that in a second, and there's celebration. So let's look at the Eucharistic prayer. This is also from our ACNA prayer book, which we've been using at least through Epiphany. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Lord, for the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Surrender. Sanctify, I'm sorry, sanity. This was very late last night. <laughs> Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit. And I actually even proofread these. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we sanctify the elements, but then we have the Spirit. Sanctify us also. And it has been actually in traditional Anglican worship, but we haven't really had this prayer. We've been using common worship or variants of it. But if how many of you came from an Episcopal church background and remember this prayer just the way this is? Yeah. And what did we do at this point? We crossed ourselves. Sanctify us also, that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made body, one body with him, one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him, that union with Christ. That's what we celebrate in the Eucharist, is our union with Christ. He lives in us. We live in him. That is the gift of the Eucharistic presence that reminds us and deepens that union. That's why we celebrate the Eucharist. Taking hold, post-communion prayer. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. So it's being sent out, taking hold, aligning our lives. So that's how we can see these rhythms in our weekly worship. Now let's look at the seasons of the church year. 
So yearly, celebrating the seasons of the church. And this is a very, this is what we're used to. This is what I kind of showed. And if you remember, if you were here at the beginning of the year when I talked about celebrating the church year, um, and we can see there are the seasons very clearly. This season, this shows, I'm not having like a little pointer, but we can see, you know, the Christmas cycle, which is Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. And then we have the Easter cycle, which starts with crucifixion, Easter. And then this is what is a new way of looking at it for me. And this is, again, this author of this book, Ascension is the end of the Easter cycle. And that totally makes sense, okay? Jesus Christ is risen. On Ascension Day, we celebrate his Ascension. And then on Pentecost, we start a new season. And so, and I, I think one of the reasons why this is important is because we often see Pentecost as the end of the Easter season. So we don't prepare for Pentecost, actually. We don't see it as a season that needs any kind of preparation. Um, hey Mary, real quick. Yeah. What's it say in the red? Like, uh, that That's Pentecost. It says Ascension here. And then in the red says Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost. And then this is ordinary time. So they have conflated. This chart, the thing I don't like about it, is conflated Ascension and Pentecost. I would have had a little sliver right here that said in white that said Ascension and then Pentecost. I could remake the, I don't know, we have to make our own map. <laughs> okay, maybe we can get um, Brad to do it. Yes. Did you have a question? Oh, I thought you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Okay. So, um, so this is how he looks at it, and he says there's a Trinitarian shape even to the church year. Um, Christmas is the festival of the father who chose his son. Easter, the festival of the risen son who conquered death. Pentecost, the festival of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So it's a beautiful way to kind of see the Trinitarian shape. And so he sees three important um, highest feasts are for him Christmas, Easter, Pentecost. That those are the three um, integral kind of altars, stones, centers of how we understand the church year. Um, so let's look, whoops, sorry, wrong way. So this is um, another, and you've got on your handout kind of a chart of this too, but um, what I like about this chart is he shows how these are the festivals, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost, and then he shows how in preparation for Christmas, and those are the dips that are underneath the center line, um, is Advent, the preparation for Lent is Easter, and then the pre-Pentecost season, which is the 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost. And in our, if you follow the Church of England's little prayer app, they actually name those days. There are a group of scriptures that have been uh, read by the church for hundreds and hundreds of years that are the scriptures that prepare one for Pentecost. So it's a very short period, but there is supposed to be after Ascension, between Ascension and Pentecost, a penitential period when we are preparing for Pentecost. Um, and I knew that, but I never quite saw it like that, you know, and saw it as that cycle of, so then um, if you go to the chart that I gave you, 
which is, I think, the next one on the thing. And I knew this was going to be too little, so I wanted to put it out here. You see these, he has it set up with these internal rhythms and the spiritual dynamics of them, and then each triad, the Easter triad, the Pentecost triad, and the Christmas triad. And for each, he has the spiritual dynamics of these seasons. And we had talked about this in the, my first talk that I gave you in the uh, first, uh, I don't know how many of you were there, but I did talk about this, how each season is an aspect of our spiritual life and our spiritual journey. Um, and that it is a cycle that we go through each year. And, but here, he has it a little bit differently because he has it as being a repeating cycle. Um, so that in Advent, we are experiencing uh, this dynamics of waiting and yearning. And I was looking at the lectionary readings for each Sunday. And this is kind of a plug to you know, every week you get a little insert in your bulletin that has the lectionary readings for the next week. And I really recommend you really meditate on those throughout the week because they reflect these aspects. When I was looking at the Advent readings, for example, I could see so much how those readings were centered on um, preparation and waiting for Christ. And then it was kind of interesting um, looking at the Christmas, the Easter, and the Pentecost readings, which all, in their own way, they do celebrate God's presence with us. Those are the three high points of the year when we celebrate that God is with us. We are naming God's presence, and those readings name God's presence. And then, you know, I never really saw this in the Epiphany readings, but if we think about the Epiphany readings we've had the last four weeks, they have been about aligning our lives. They've been parables, or they've been teachings of Jesus that are talking about how do we align our lives to him. And you see that over and over again. I mean, this person that wrote this book has done tremendous amount of study. I mean, he goes through all the lectionary readings and everything, but how the lectionary itself even reflects this pattern. I think if we begin to really invest ourselves in our Sunday readings before we get to church on Sunday, we will be living these seasons and we will be living these rhythms that are built into the seasons. So is there any questions about this so far? Any discussion? Because I'd love to open it up. I have a quick question. Yeah. Sunday readings. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the readings that are during the week, they, they are geared towards the season, but it's a little bit differently because you're also doing some continual readings. Because um, basically the daily lectionaries, you know, if you read all of them, which is a lot, um, you would have read through the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once in one year, and you'd also read through the Psalms maybe like I think six or seven times. I think it's a, on a two-month basis. I know it's set up that way in the ACNA prayer book. They can either go through all the Psalm, the whole Psalter in a month, or you can go through the Psalter in two months. Um, so those are more continuous readings. So um, in my own practice, I 
have gotten to the point where I don't want to be reading tons and tons of scripture. I mean, I do for my job anyway, <laughs> but I want to really be taking smaller chunks. And I have found taking one of the lectionary readings each day and meditating upon that and then taking, you know, even meditating on the psalm for the following week. And then I usually will pick a book that I'm going to be reading through continually, like, a, like one of the Gospels. Or I do have one book, that I, but I don't try to do three continuous readings. It's just too much. So I don't know if that's helpful. But yeah, I think the lectionary readings are key. Yes? I just wanted to go back to uh, this idea of the evening, the evening, the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just I've been wondering how that can work or might work for people who, for instance, have an evening shift or it might be a performer or a lecturer, right. and, and the, the evening is perhaps the high point of the day in terms of uh, right. work schedule. Well, I think none of this is in stone, and I think people find their own rhythms, and for some people it would be different. Like, you know, they work all night, so that's not exactly, maybe their rest time is, you know, their evenings and nights are maybe mixed up. So it's not meant to be, it's more just meant to be to think about the rhythms in our life and to think about, um, just as we have a, physical rhythm of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We have a physical rhythm of sleeping and waking, and that to think of spiritual rhythms throughout the day in the same way, I think it, no matter how you, know, you would do it, but just adapt it to what. But I do think for those of us who have traditional nine to five jobs, you know, our days are traditionally shaped evening, morning. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at it. So, but thanks for bringing that up, because it's really true. So let's look at our season that we're in right now. Um, Candle Mass, um, the presentation of the Lord. Uh, okay, I think we got something got missed. Yes, here we are. Um, I kind of wanted to look end this kind of section on the rhythms. This was um. There's a very long poem in this book, but this is the one that has to do with the Christmas season. And I thought it really was beautifully um, expressed, this idea that he has about the Christmas season. So when we long for things to be different, when we watch and wait, we are Advent people. When we recognize the presence of the holy and the ordinary, we celebrate Christmas. When a sense of the sacramental is broken open to us and we respond, by offering our material wealth, our worship, our lives, and our deaths, we live an epiphany life. And I think that last, that just summarized the readings we've been listening to for the last month. Go back and look at them, uh, especially if you have the lectionary app on your phone. By the way, that's a great app to have, the Church of England lectionary app. Um, that's what we follow. It's if you want to have the lectionary readings, you know, at your fingertips, but they're also in the, um, the little uh, inserts that we give them to you. So, Candlemas. The presentation of our Lord. It is a very, very old um, season. It's not, this was not invented in the Reformation or in the Middle Ages. It's one of the very, I mean, when the seasons of the church year were being established in the 300s and 400s, this presentation of the Lord was right there. Um, it is the history, um, the first mention we really have of Candlemas is in 
the Pilgrimage of Egeria. How many of you are familiar with the Pilgrimage of Egeria? This is, if you want to know anything about how the church celebrated the early seasons in the 400s, late 300s, they think perhaps um, Egeria was a, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Am I pronouncing her name right? Egeria, okay. Um, she was a female pilgrim. And one of the amazing things about it is that they kept a diary and passed it down to perpetuity of a woman. I mean, that, I mean that's kind of amazing right there. But she may have been some sort of um, proto-nun, you know, a woman. Uh, she was like, she had devoted her life to the Lord. She was a celibate woman. And she went on this journey. I think they believe she was, um, may have been even from Spain, but she went on a pilgrimage to all the holy places in um, the Middle East, including going to Mount Sinai and seeing where it was believed the holy bush was uh, that Moses saw. I mean, this is the beautiful monastery that they have there. They had it then. Um, and she, but the thing that is really incredible about her witness is she describes the church services in Jerusalem in about 375 and 400. And this is why we know so much about the vigil that we do, is because of Egeria. But she also describes, um, and it just reads like a diary. It's, it's just, it's really wonderful reading. So this is how she describes Candle Mass. The 40th day after Epiphany is certainly celebrated here, she's talking about Jerusalem, with the greatest honor. So 40 days, remember that significance of 40 days? It's, where we come up with this, the 40th day after Epiphany, is certainly celebrated here with the greatest honor. For on that day, the procession is in the Anastasis. It starts in front of the altar. And all assemble, and everything is done in its order with the greatest rejoicing as at the Pasha. So this was like the vigil. This, it was celebration like we, like we do at Easter. Um, all the presbyters also preach, and then the bishop, drawing on that passage in the gospel, where on the 40th day, Joseph and Mary brought the Lord into the temple, and Simeon and Anna, the prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, saw him, and about their words that they spoke when they saw the Lord, and about the offering that his parents made. And after everything that is customary has been celebrated in order, the sacrament is administered, and then the dismissal is done. So then when the Paschal days approach, they are celebrated thus. For us, among us, 40 days before Pasha are observed. So then she goes on to describe Lent. But it, it's just, it's just, it kind of makes your spine spingle a little bit to think that this celebration is that, you know, is that old and has been going on this long. And yes, there was the tradition of this light shining in the darkness uh, and we were still in the dark days of the year. And uh, we haven't come to the spring equinox yet. We're about halfway there, so it's still a dark time. And candles were lit, and the candles were processed throughout Jerusalem um, and brought into the, um, into the church. I don't know, she doesn't really mention this, but later these candles were blessed. And so this was a very important year. And so I'd like to kind of take a look at why, um, why, what could we get from, in this little time that we have left, I think we have maybe about five or 10 minutes, 
um, I would like to take a look at our Candlemas text. And what I'd like to do, and I'd like you to maybe just silently read them. I'll give you a minute to silently read the first one from Malachi. Matt, do you, does everybody have a handout? Are you okay? I think we got quite a So Candlemas, to me, in many ways touches, it's kind of this, like I said, kind of an apex of epiphany. And I think it may be even an apex in a sense of this whole Christmas season, because I think that it brings together all of those themes of, and let's go back in my slides. Of, letting go, naming God's presence, taking hold, waiting and yearning, naming and celebrating, proclaiming and sending. So how do we see in this first text any of those themes? Well, if we're reading, yeah, if we're, if we're reading is the Malachi, he says, behold, I send my, my messenger and he will portray the, the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. This is the prophecy that um, Simeon was holding on to. This yearning and waiting. And yet, there is in this, this naming of God's presence and aligning because this Lord who is going to come is going to be a judge so clearly in this passage. So, um, so let's look at the letter to the Hebrews. How might you find, and I'd love to get some discussion going, so. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same thing that so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement. What is kind of amazing about that passage, especially on Candle Mass? Yes. I think something really bright about it is that worship shines clearly God's affinity for his people. Right. And that's just like highlighted in history that it's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. God's desire and love for his people. Yes. Yeah. I love the sort of 
main touch that this one adds to the sort of incredible and terrifying majesty of the microreading. Like, who can endure? Right. Right. And then this one, it, it pivots to, he, be, he had to become like his brothers and sisters. Right. So he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Yes. It's a nice combination to not leave us with this, like, you're just going to be refined and wiped out. Exactly. Yes, it's definitely kind of a naming of God's presence among us, that nice idea way. of God with us. Yes, in a nice way. What else do you see? Well, let's look at it this way. What was Mary doing? I mean, Candlemas is the day that, for those of you who haven't heard the text yet, it's the day we celebrate when Mary and Joseph came to the temple. It was, she um, actually... You know, because she'd given birth, there was a period that she had to wait before she could even touch anything holy or come into the temple. And so it was a day of purification for her. And then they brought in, because it was the firstborn son, they had to bring in this sacrifice of the turtle doves into and make a sacrifice of their son. He was the firstborn son. So the significance of that is so clear here in Hebrews because he did become the ultimate sacrifice. Mary and Joseph had no idea when they were offering this sacrifice for the birth of their firstborn son that he, not the turtle doves, he would become the sacrifice. But he's also the high priest. I mean, that's what I find that so amazing about this, that he's not just... He's not just the one, he is the priest and he is the victim. So, um, yes, of course, surrender. The ultimate, like you said, the ultimate surrender, right? It's the ultimate surrender. Um, and I've got the view of it, not everyone does, but this is every day in our congregation, except she comes down to Lent sometimes. She holds turtle doves in her hands right there. Yeah. Yes, right there, right. So... How about the Candlemas text? Now we get to our gospel text. And there's a couple of things that remember we are in Epiphany. So how does this text kind of embolize Epiphany, which is supposed to be that kind of aligning, that kind of sending? How does this text exemplify that? Yes. about Simeon is he said he saw something that nobody else really saw and that was this a salvation that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples that this was going to be a sacrifice for the whole world not just for the Jewish people this is a proclamation of the gospel if there ever was one um, 
this light for the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. And then we have Anna. And I don't, do we have Anna in this text? Yes, we do, right. Um, I'm so glad we include it because some of the lectionaries don't include Anna. Um, yeah. I don't know if I have that here, but Anna is in the text, yes. Right. She was really the first one to declare to to temple to the people um, that that the good news had arrived. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I believe in this season that we do have the story does matter, and if you walk away from anything, I want you to walk away with these stories in the seasons of the church, that they matter to us. And that in these stories, I think we should always be looking for this rhythm of letting go, naming God's presence, and aligning our lives. I think these stories will come to have so much more meaning to us if we see the ways in which they exemplify that pattern. Um, I guess, yeah. Okay.